0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And it's Saturday. Time for a Vault episode. This one originally aired on January 28th, 2021. And it is about a fascinating artifact from ancient Egypt and how it may interact with climate and geological history. Yeah, yeah, this is this is a really fun one because, of course, it concerns ancient Egypt. It
1: concerns, you know, uh, attempts to understand what what ancient people were thinking about and and ultimately writing about. And it also gets to sort of the heart of like, what is what is a written um, uh, account of the past for? What purpose does it serve uh, to those who uh, who are in charge of the inscriptions?
0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be talking about an artifact. This is actually a topic that I was originally reading about, thinking about doing one of our new short-form episodes, The Artifact, mm-hmm. about, but... Uh, it, it kind of ballooned in my mind and kept picking up weird little tangents here and there, and I realized it was much too big of a subject just to be like a five to ten minute episode. So so now we're talking about this today, and the subject is an artifact from ancient Egypt known as the Amos Stela or the Tempest Stela. And I already apologize because I know at some point in this episode I'm going to forget to pronounce Stela with a long E and I'm going to start saying Stella. It's that mm-hmm. word, you know, it's S-T-E-L L-A or s-t-e-l-e which i i can never get the get the sounds right in my brain
1: yeah but like, like we were rehearsing it before the episode it's Steela, as in steel uh steely dan album from the record uh,
0: store uh-huh okay. uh and there's some kind of uh there's some kind of other word that's also steel or steely s-t-e-l-e which i can't figure out if it's totally interchangeable with stela or just mostly interchangeable anyway we're not going to deal with that in this episode because we're only concerned with one primary stela here and it's this Amos stela or tempest stela. So this artifact is at its heart, a big stone block. It is a slab. It is a big slab made of calcite that's currently in multiple fragments. I think there are at least three major fragments. Um, And they were recovered from the temple complex of Karnak, which is in the ancient Egyptian city of Thebes near the modern uh, Upper Egypt city of Luxor. And this artifact was recovered by archaeologists, I think, in the late 1940s or early 1950s. Uh, Karnak, of course, is this big, beautiful temple complex. You may have seen it represented digitally in like Transformers movies where there are big robots slugging around there or as an actual (laughs) shooting location in The Spy Who Loved Me. Did the Transformers really battle here? I think they did at some point. Okay. All right. The Transformer uh, – it's part of the the raison d'etre of, of uh, Transformers to eventually just slam through and demolish every work of humankind. Like all artifacts and landscapes must be ground into sand by the Transformers. Until only Transformers remain. Right. Okay. Just a, a barren, featureless earth that's completely smooth, but with Transformers, with with Mack trucks and, and uh, <laughs> Jeeps and stuff. But anyway, what's the deal with this slab, the Tempestila? It, it originally stood about 1.8 meters tall, so about six feet tall, and it bears an inscription text that was copied on both sides in these horizontal lines, but it also has some imagery at the top, so to quote from uh, one of the papers that we're going to be referencing today, I think the, this description comes from this first paper that was published by uh, Karen Pollinger Foster, Robert K. Ritner, and Benjamin R. Foster in the Journal of Near Eastern Studies in 1996, quote, "'Above the horizontal body of each text is a lunette with two adorsed scenes and brief vertical labels. Unlike the parallel text, the two lunette labels display minor variation in wording, but Both faces preserve dual scenes of the king followed by a female deity of fecundity carrying offering trays. And these trays have like fruits and vegetables on them. So you've got this big old text that's on both sides and then this image of a king and a lady who represents fertility uh, carrying up some nice food stuffs, fruits and vegetables, nice plant matter. And so here, I I think maybe we should actually just read the full text of the Tempest because it's not all that long. uh, And this is something that I personally really love. Maybe other people aren't as interested in it as I am, but it just reading the text of of texts that are this old, like these ancient Egyptian inscriptions, really does kind of put me in an altered state of consciousness. You know, it's like uh, I, I feel like I'm inhabiting a mind that is so separated from me by time and culture that it's a little bit creepy. Yeah, I mean, to to a certain extent,
1: that's that's exactly what's happening, right? The transfer of information across the ages.
0: Yeah. And and there's this like weird tingling down at the bottom of my brain where I just feel like there's a lot that's really important that I'm not understanding, but I'm getting just the slightest hint of what it is coming through in the translation. Oh, well, that's the tingler. You got that. (laughs) That's that's the uh, Vincent Price movie. Well, no, but uh, I, I, I know what you're talking about with this. Okay, this English translation is by the American Egyptologist Robert K. Rittner, who is the uh, one of the authors on a couple of studies that we're going to be mentioning today. Now, again, the Stila text is damaged, so there are some gaps. And some of these have been filled in with what is very likely what their contents were, so there's just some text that we don't have, but we feel very confident you know, this is what it would have been. And other parts are just left blank where there's less certainty. And I guess when we get to one of those blank spots, we'll just sort of pause for a second in the reading. So here it goes. Long live the Horus great of manifestations. He of the two ladies pleasing of birth, the golden Horus who binds the two lands, King of the upper and lower Egypt, Neb-Feti-Ra, son of Ra, Amos, living forever. Now then, his majesty came. Ra himself had appointed him to be king of Upper Egypt. Then his majesty dwelt at the town of sedyefa in the district just to the south of Dendera, while Amun-Ra, lord of the thrones of the two lands, was in Thebes."
1: It was his majesty who sailed south to offer bread, beer, and everything good and pure. Now, after the offering, then attention was given in this district. Now then, the cult image of this God at his body was installed in this temple while he was in joy. Now then, this great God desired his majesty while the gods declared their discontent. The gods caused the sky to come in a tempest of rain, with darkness in the western region and the sky being unleashed without cessation, louder than the cries of the masses, more powerful than, while the rain raged on the mountains, louder than the noise of the cataract, which is at Elephantine.
0: Every house, every quarter that they reached... "'Floating on the water like skiffs of papyrus opposite the royal residence for a period of... days, while a torch could not be lit in the two lands. "'Then his majesty said, "'How much greater this is than the wrath of the great god, than the plans of the gods!' "'Then his majesty descended to his boat.' With his council following him, while the crowds on the east and west had hidden faces, having no clothing on them, after the manifestation of the god's wrath. Then his majesty reached the interior of Thebes, with gold confronting gold, for this statue so that he, meaning Amun-Ra, received that which he desired.
1: Then his majesty began to re-establish the two lands, to drain the flooded territories without his to provide them with silver, with gold, with copper, with oil, and cloth of every bolt that could be desired. Then his majesty made himself comfortable inside the palace, life, prosperity, health. Then his majesty was informed that the mortuary concessions had been entered by water, with the tomb chambers collapsed, the funerary mansions undermined, and the pyramids fallen, having been made into that which was never made." in his majesty commanded to restore the temples which had fallen into ruin in this entire land to refurbish the monuments of the gods, to erect their enclosure walls, to provide the sacred objects in the noble chamber, to mass the secret places to introduce into their shrines the cult statues which were cast to the ground to set up the braziers, to erect the offering tables, to establish their bread offerings, to double the income of the personnel to put the land into its former state.
0: Then it was done in accordance with everything that his majesty had commanded. Ooh, uh, (laughs) so there are some parts of that that really give me chills. So the, the, the basic outline of it being that it introduces this great king, the great Amos, who rises up and he answers this problem of there's some kind of calamity being described. There are rains and uh, a tempest coming out of the sky with darkness in the Western region, thundering in the sky, uh, the sky being unleashed without cessation, louder than the cries of the masses. There's apparently some kind of flooding with bodies, human bodies floating in the Nile like skiffs of papyrus. And uh, and a torch could not be lit in the two lands. But then there is some kind of offering made to the gods to fix this problem, to make everything right. And it it tells us basically that Amos, this guy, did a really good job, and he like got everything fixed, and now it's under control.
1: Yeah. So it's uh yeah so it's so again yeah it's a story of a disaster occurring and then government responding to that disaster. <laughs> But uh, there's some uh, we're, we're not going to take everything in that and explain it. I know there's some some names and some obvious gods and some kings, but just to run through a few things that I, I think are, are are important or at least halfway important to understanding what's going on here. Um, I, I want to just call it a few things. So, first of all, Horus, uh, Horus is the celestial falcon and the embodiment of kingship caught in an enduring conflict with Seth. Uh, Horus likely means the distant one. And there are two distinct versions. There's Horus the Elder and Horus the Younger, not to be confused with
0: Horus the Child. Right. So uh, an important god who's associated with the royal lineage of of Egypt in this period. Right. And uh, now one thing that this makes reference to that is geographically confusing to modern audiences is the concept of Upper and Lower Egypt, which are – unless you're familiar with how uh, ancient Egyptians talked about their geography, it's the opposite of what you would think.
1: Right. Yeah. It's always worth remembering that the ancient Egyptians saw their world uh, uh, a little bit differently than we do today. Um, and Not to say they saw the world upside down. They just saw it from their point of view. Uh, so well, no- north and south are totally arbitrary, by the
0: way. Right. There, there's yeah. no such thing as objective north and south.
1: Yeah. So with, the way they saw it is with the Nile Delta at the bottom of their kingdom. So Upper Egypt is actually somewhat lower on the modern state of Egypt that we memorize in school and look at on a map, basically in the, in the area of Thebes. Lower Egypt is the delta region that entails Memphis. So Lower Egypt is to the north and Upper Egypt is to the south. Right.
0: <laughs> now, what about uh, the sun god Ra, right? There's reference to Ra.
1: Yeah, Ra, the sun god, source of all light and life. Um, you know, and there's a lot more to each of these gods,
0: but this is just the, the, the short and simple. Now there are some references in here to Amun Ra.
1: Yeah, and this—if uh, I'm correct on this—this this is this is also known as Amun. This is the mysterious creator god, and his name means the hidden one.
0: Yeah. Now the main character of the Amos Stela or the the Tempest Stela here is Amos himself, meaning Amos the First, who was a pharaoh, and he's the guy who who does all the fixing here.
1: Yeah, he is the uh, founder of the 18th dynasty, who reigned, uh, well, one of the the dates I was looking at were
0: 1549 through 1524 BCE. Right, so the dates of his reign are actually somewhat disputed and that will come into that will be in some way the subject matter of what we're talking about today though it does appear he reigned sometime in the 16th century bce so probably sometime between 1600 and 1500 bce the more conventional egyptology chronology dates put put him in the middle somewhere in there yeah like a 15 yeah. you know the middle of the century to sometime in the late three quarters yeah, but either way, he seems
1: to have been a very pivotal ruler at a very pivotal time. He was building on his father's military success and paved the road for the new kingdom and the beginning of an age of just Egyptian dominance. Um, he reinvigorated and united Egypt, and this is key too, he completed the expulsion of the Hyksos. So at this time, uh, Egypt or Part of Egypt, anyway, were were ruled by these outsiders, these foreigners that invaded, um, perhaps you know, from Palestine or somewhere in that region. Uh, and anyway, uh, basically, what Amos did is he finished driving them out. He finished a rebellion against them that had begun by had been begun by his predecessors and re-exerted Egypt's rule over northern Nubia uh, to the south. So it'll be important to think about all this as we discuss the details of his rule. But uh, he was a fair. In an age of growth, he brought about yeah. a new kingdom. A
0: conquest king. He was like, we're, I'm going to conquer the areas to the north and the south and bring Egypt together again under one rule.
1: Yeah. Now, as for the the Hyksos, they're, they're very, very interesting. And uh, people have have written and, and, and researched uh, regarding them and made various uh, uh, hypotheses and theories uh-huh. regarding their exact nature. There's a lot of very speculative Bible stuff about them. Yeah. Yeah, you, you've, you may have, if you're a Bible reader and a Bible student, you may have seen them pop up, I'm sure, in like just even the notes in a, a standard Bible. They were the, the foreign Canaanite or Palestinian rulers of Egypt who took power during the 17th century BCE. They ruled lower and middle Egypt and established a capital mm-hmm. at Averis, which was associated with the Egyptian god Seth or Set or Sutek, which was in turn equated with the Palestinian god Baal. Uh, the Hyksos called themselves the, selves the sons of Ra, but one of them actually bore the name of Ra's nemesis, Apophis, the great crocodile or snake of chaos, which mm, is interesting. I, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, in uh, Geraldine Pinch's Egyptian mythology, she points out that the conflict of the time seems to have taken on mythological trappings as well as their stories related to a quarrel between the followers of Horus, the Thebans, and the followers of Seth. The Hyksos. Hmm. And the word seems to be related to just foreign rulers. Uh, uh, I believe it's uh, hekau Kasut, uh, rulers of foreign lands, and Hyksos is derived from this via the Greek.
0: Okay, right. So Hyksos would not have been what they called themselves, but a sort of exonym applied by uh, the Egyptians or even maybe later Greek-speaking Egyptians. Right.
1: And of course, this is where it often gets interesting uh, with with ancient history when you're dealing with outsiders. Right. Because Mm -hmm. the outsiders are defined by those writing the history, not only in terms of what happened and you know what transpired, but but also like who they were. What were these people? Um, And so at times you've had people, uh, historians come in and and try and figure it out and, and maybe come in with a bit of an agenda. Uh, first century Jewish historian Flavius Josephus translated this at the time – again, this is first century CE uh, mm-hmm. um, – as as hyksos meaning king shepherds or captive shepherds. Hmm. And this was an attempt to establish historical evidence for the Jewish people in ancient Egypt. And this will come up again.
0: Yeah, there there are a lot of, um, I don't know, h- historical religious apologetics where people try to invoke the hyksos as um, – somehow being descended from, uh, say, Joseph, like the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis coming mm-hmm. to Egypt and uh, serving the Pharaoh. Um, as someone who, uh, you know, listeners know that I'm a big fan of the Bible, especially, I, you know, I, I love the, the books of the Torah and all that. So not to denigrate the story at all as a, a wonderful uh, myth, but like, I don't think there's much historical evidence that the, these tales are like actual history that would be linked to Egyptian chronology.
1: Yeah, I mean very broadly speaking there there seem to be like different levels of it. I mean there there are are there are certainly uh, people who look at history and look at things like the Hyksos and try to draw a direct line mm-hmm. uh and say like these were uh, uh, the Jewish people or say, I've seen it before in, in Bible notes, for instance, saying, well, okay, the, the Hyksos were foreign rulers in Egypt at the time, which would have made it possible for someone like Moses, an outsider to rise up in the ranks enough to have the role that he plays in the Exodus story. Mm-hmm. And then you have other people who are like, that, 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 that make kind of a, a middle ground argument saying, well, okay, the, 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 uh, the Egyptian captivity is, um, is, is, a, is a myth or, or you know it, it is a legend but it is based in things that were passed down orally and therefore there could be some connection between these two but it, mm-hmm. the exact threads connecting them are uncertain so like I said there are whole, there's a whole lot of literature out there about uh, this topic and to what degree there are any connections here.
0: I would just say that I- anything that tries to get too specific in tying these things to specific stories in the Bible is probably highly speculative.
1: Yeah. And we'll come back to some of this uh, later on in the episode.
0: Yeah. But what actually got me interested in talking about the Tempestila, apart from just it being a very interesting text to read, is... Is the question of, is this referring to something that actually happened in Egyptian history? All this stuff mm-hmm. about, uh, you know, the darkness in the sky and the, and the flooding of the Nile and the bodies floating in the water and the water entering all these temple complexes and, uh, and being and the thundering and being unable to uh, to light a torch in the two lands. What, what is all this talking about? Um, And so this actually ties into a study uh, from 2014, actually a couple of studies. The most recent one, I think, was from 2014 in the Journal of Near Eastern Studies that I was reading about that, that made an interesting connection between the events described in this text and a possible actual geological cause. Or is this text, as it's been more traditionally interpreted, referring to either some kind of natural event that is more, uh, I don't know, more regular and, and less extreme, or is it referring to something in a, in a metaphorical sense or telling a kind of uh, fictional narrative to hype up this first ruler of the 18th dynasty?
1: Yeah, some have, 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 have made that argument, that, uh, that it may be a metaphor. The storm itself may be a metaphor for Hyksos oppression. Um, Ian Shaw writes about this in the Oxford History of Ancient Egypt, suggesting that it might have served as, quote, an official explanation for the impoverishment of the Theban region, and, more importantly, Amos' role in restoring the riches of the Karnak Temple and its god. In other words, a story to explain why Other temple riches were sold off to pay for, uh, to a certain extent, to pay for the Thebans' rebellion of the 17th dynasty. So not to say that there wasn't also a real storm of some sort, but that, quote, these particular events might have been recounted on the stela simply uh, in order to suit historico-religious purposes.
0: Yeah, and that's something that we see all throughout ancient history. I think is uh, sort of <laughs> a creative reengineering of events in storytelling to make certain leaders look good. Yeah, and uh, I mean another thing is if this were just describing the flooding, like the the flooding is one of the major aspects of the the calamity described in uh, on the slab. You know, Nile flooding is a regular occurrence. The, there's like uh, mm-hmm. there's like monsoonal, uh, seasonal flooding of the Nile that occurs every year to varying degrees, and so that that's something to keep in mind as we go about this.
1: Yeah, I and I think i mentioned before. I'd I'd love to come back and just do an episode on the Nile and its flooding uh, because it has such an such uh, an intrinsic role in the the worldview of the ancient Egyptians and their entire cosmology. Uh, mm-hmm. It's
0: fascinating stuff. Okay, but so to come into this possible, or at least the hypothetical geological connection that we're exploring today, uh, we need to travel north of Egypt. We need to go up into the Mediterranean to a place that's now known as Santorini, but has also gone by the name of Thera. Now, you may have seen that uh, spelled T-H-E-R-A, and I have always said Terra when Say When saying that, but it's actually mm-hmm. apparently Thera. Okay. And Thera, or Santorini, was the site of a catastrophic volcanic eruption in the ancient world that likely had a really powerful impact on Bronze Age history. Uh, this is also known as the Minoan eruption, or the eruption at Thera. Uh, now, I actually found a really great source on the Thera eruption, which was a chapter— in a book by former show guest Clive Oppenheimer, who huh. was uh, on the show with us uh, when we interviewed him and Werner Herzog about their documentary Fireball, Clive Oppenheimer wrote a book that he published with Cambridge University Press in 2011 called Eruptions That Shook the World that is about volcanic eruptions all throughout the past and how they've shaped the course of human events and human evolution, human history. So he's going to be one of my main sources on on this eruption here. So uh, – Thera, or today Santorini, is an island, or I guess really a group of islands, in the south of the Aegean Sea. So it's between Greece and Turkey and north of Crete. It's one of the, the southern Aegean islands. And if you look at a picture of Santorini taken from above you may immediately be able to guess something about its geological yeah. history. It's got a kind of scary shape that immediately, like if you, if you're volcano minded can kind of make your gut sink because part of the island is this long C shaped landmass C as in the letter C, like a capital C uh, landmass that has steep cliffs on the inner wall of the curve of that sea. And then smoother, tapering shores and slopes on the outside. And then opposite the inner curve of that letter C shape, there's another large landmass with similar characteristics facing inward. Uh, So Oppenheimer mentions that if you look at the inward-facing cliffs, you can see alternating colors of rock strata in yellow, white, and gray, and red. And so it should be probably kind of obvious what this is. This island group is the partially submerged caldera of an ancient gigantic volcano that is now half-swallowed by the ocean. Uh, now, this island, of course, is famous to geologists and historians of the Bronze Age because this volcano was the source of the catastrophic Minoan eruption, uh, which, the again, the date of this eruption is going to be in dispute and, and part of what we're talking about today. But just to... You know, very broad strokes, think roughly in the area of 1600 BCE. Now, it was in the 20th century, actually, that archaeologists really came to recognize the effects that this eruption had had on nearby human civilization. And one great example that Oppenheimer highlights is the work of an archaeologist named Spirodin uh, Marinatos, who dug up parts of what would have been a Minoan port settlement on the southern part of Santorini uh, that is now known as Akrotiri. Though This name is applied by modern scholars. We don't know what the ancient inhabitants of this town would have called it. Uh, but this would have been a relatively wealthy and well-developed town until the volcano woke up. Uh, we, we talked actually some Last October, with uh, Nicoletto Momigliano, about the Minoan civilization and its its palace power centers on Crete. Now, this, this island again would have been north of Crete, so away from the real center of political power of the Minoan Empire, but still, it was, I, I think, part of that civilization and shared in its wealth and its trade and its culture. Yeah. And in her book,
1: uh, In Search of the Labyrinth, uh, the Cultural Legacy of Minoan Crete, I mean, she, she does uh, uh, reference volcanoes uh, several times.
0: Yeah. And uh, I think volcanoes would have been highly relevant to the history of the Minoan culture. And eventually, the, the Minoan culture uh, declined and was superseded and, and conquered by Mycenaean culture. But this kind of eruption would have been unprecedented in local human memory. The, the volcano had been calm for approximately 15,000 years beforehand, at least. And uh, and so this late Bronze Age eruption was one of the largest European volcano eruptions of the past 100,000 years. This was a, a huge, highly energetic, highly destructive event. Um, and it's interesting actually looking at – What's left behind in this particular settlement on Santorini, the place now known as Akrotiri, I was reading about it a bit in uh, this uh, the, one of the first of two papers involving Robert K. Rittner that we're going to be looking at today. This was the one by uh, Foster, Rittner and Foster from 1996 in the Journal of Near Eastern Studies called Text Storms and the Thera Eruption and uh the authors here they 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 talk about how archaeologists uncovered remnants of this ancient village on on the southern coast of the island group preserved under this thick bed of volcanic ash and Because it was an ancient settlement that was preserved under layers of tephra, it is similar in some ways to the ruins of places like Pompeii and Herculaneum up on the Italian peninsula, which were themselves kind of frozen in time by the eruption of Vesuvius in 79 CE. In a similar way, we see this settlement Frozen in time. It was rapidly buried by volcanic ash, and there are lots of artifacts and features that were very well preserved, including some extremely beautiful original frescoes and paintings that uh, I would really recommend looking up, looking up the paintings from Thera, um, and, and the frescoes there. There are some that are these large, sort of tableaus or landscape scenes that show like a port city with boats moving to and fro uh, and mm-hmm. a background of these colorful colorful buildings and hills full of wild animals and plants. And there was even, for a brief tangent, there was even this w- really interesting mystery about the art there that I came across that was uh, one painting at Akrotiri showing monkeys, these mm. blue monkeys that appear to be similar to a species that uh, would not have been native to the Aegean, but would have been native either to to Africa or to India, which is, I think, often taken as a sign of the kind of often surprising level of trade and interconnectedness in the ancient world, that either live specimens of these monkeys or artistic depictions of these monkeys were being taken back and forth from far and wide around the world. That's impressive. I mean, either way,
1: once exposed to monkeys, one cannot help but create art about monkeys.
0: Yes. Maybe one day we should just come back and, and devote a whole thing to the blue monkeys controversy. Is it, what kind of monkeys are these? Where did these images come from? Uh, and so forth. I, I, I don't know. I, I found this very interesting, but maybe we should just get back to the eruption for now. Okay. <laughs> Now, uh, Oppenheimer, in writing about the eruption of thera, uh, he he says that the eruption seems to have pr- been preceded by an earthquake or maybe series of earthquakes that that damaged the local infrastructure. In fact, it looks from the remains of this settlement like the locals had not finished up cleaning the debris and the damage from the earthquake at the time the town was buried under Tephra from the eruption. So it seems very likely that these things are related. Uh, and Oppenheimer writes, quote, the townsfolk appear to have suspected impending doom. At least no victims have been found, suggesting that Akrotiri's residents abandoned the town before it was buried by thick tephra fall and pyroclastic current deposits. On the other hand, so much tephra remain unexcavated that it's entirely possible that victims will be located eventually. Uh, now, I guess this book was written in 2011. I haven't read about any victims discovered since then, but that would be interesting to come back to. Uh, anyway, Oppenheimer goes on to say, The clearing away of debris and reconstruction were unfinished when the first hydrovolcanic blasts excavated a new pathway for magma to reach the surface, probably through a vent on one of the islands and towards the eastern wall of the present-day caldera. Once the conduit was established, a sustained plinian eruption ensued, gaining in intensity through time, evident from increasing size of pumice chunks upwards through the associated deposits. The eruption column reached an estimated maximum altitude of 36 kilometers, from which it would have descended to its level of neutral buoyancy in the lower stratosphere. The plume was then carried towards the east and southeast by prevailing winds, so there would be this this giant volcanic Column, you know, visible from very far away, going up 36 kilometers in the air, or at least up to 36 kilometers in the air. And then he says uh, the parts of the island were covered in up to six meters of uh, white silicic pumice. And then the geological evidence indicates that seawater repeatedly sloshed into the volcanic vent rapidly mixing together water and magma and uh and then through the surrounding sedimentary structures, so the rock layers that we can see left there now, it looks like that there was this uh enhanced fragmentation of magma that you see when water and magma mix together very quickly. And uh, Oppenheimer writes, quote, the resulting deposits which accumulated to a depth of 12 meters are punctuated by desk-sized lava bombs that must have traced ballistic trajectories from the vent to thwack into the soft and sticky pyroclastic beds. These characteristics indicate formation by successive shattering blasts and associated with Base surges, similar to ground-hugging currents, apparent in photographs of atmospheric nuclear weapons tests, that would have readily scaled the complex topography of the island. Um, so, uh, so now Oppenheimer writes that the vent at this point in the eruption would have been filled with this sort of red-hot salad of ash, water, steam, and pumice. And you'd get these repeated blasts that would have kept widening the vent as the energy released by the eruption just kept increasing, and eventually you would get this climactic phase of the eruption you know as, as it reaches its its pinnacle and uh, what he calls a soaring phoenix cloud and a new formation of a new caldera so in the end this this gargantuan event had implications reaching far beyond just this island here known as Santorini. There would have been weather and climate uh, effects far and wide. Quite possibly major damage from uh, tsunamis. Uh, Oppenheimer writes that, quote, the total size of the eruption, which probably lasted no more than a few days, is difficult to estimate since so much of the material is beneath the waves, but is thought to have been around a magnitude of 7.2 or 60 cubic kilometers of dense magma. Uh, so, to, you know, pe- people can't picture 60 cubic kilometers. What is that? Mm-hmm. Uh, imagine a solid cube. That is about 3.9 kilometers or about 2.4 miles on each edge. And it's a cube that big.
1: So we're talking about a, it's a real cataclysmic eruption here. This, was, this, this, was, this was, would have been horrifying to, to witness from afar.
0: Yes, the, the local environment, the island itself, would have been just completely in- entombed, is the word Oppenheimer uses, just buried. And then Minoan Tefra goes far, far away, like it's been found as far away as the Black Sea, indicating um, you know, uh, what uh, Oppenheimer says is a, a fallout area bigger than 2 million square kilometers, which he says is equivalent to about the size of Mexico. So a wow. gigantic radius of, of effect – if you're trying to picture on the map it affecting areas beyond, in the Black Sea, the Black Sea is on the other side of Turkey from the Aegean, so it is huge. But then, interestingly, Oppenheimer brings up one of the issues that is most debated with respect to the Minoan eruption, which is what was its exact date? It seems like the kind of thing that you should be able to tell, right? You know, we we know exactly what day this occurred, but it's harder than you might think. We know it was roughly thirty five hundred years ago, but what year exactly? Um, Now, I guess a question would be like, why would this be tricky to date? You know, shouldn't shouldn't we have a record of it? Well, most of our chronology for the uh, ancient Eastern Mediterranean is based on the historical timeline of pharaonic dynasties in Egypt you know that they, they kept pretty good records they include the lengths of reigns but even with these uh, uh these uh, pharaoh chronologies there's still a lot of uncertainty in the dating of these pharaohs when you go farther back especially to the kind of period we're talking about you know if you get into like the the period of the roman empire or something uh then dates are really solid we just know what year things happened but if you mm-hmm. go a thousand years 1500 years back before that uh, throughout much of the Eastern Mediterranean, there's way more room for questioning and error because there are fewer written records. Those records are less correlated with objectively dated other things. So there's just there there are a lot of question marks.
1: Yeah, like to to drive home something we've we've mentioned in the past. We, we in dealing with the with ancient Egypt, we're dealing with the ancient history. Uh, of the Romans like the yeah. Romans considered this ancient history.
0: Yeah, what were t- so Julius Caesar if he's thinking about uh, the events concurrent with the eruption of Thera that would have been like something like 1500 years ago for him. So us yeah. thinking back to, you know, the collapse of the Roman Empire. Yeah. And then that's funny. That's just the new kingdom of Egypt. Again, I, I've said this on the show before, but one of, one of the most amazing things is to think about how far back ancient history goes. Just in the written part of history where we have some records and there are recognizable civilizations, that's the new kingdom. To the yeah. ancient Romans, the old kingdom of Egypt would have been more ancient to them than the Romans were to us. Yeah,
1: and that that's just always mind-boggling to think about. I, I love
0: that. Yeah. But anyway, so, so we get to these dating issues. Um, now I, I'm gonna try to avoid getting too technical about the dating, cause like, you know, arguing about, uh, You know, how many decades in this direction or that direction, uh, you date an event can get a little bit, uh, wearisome, I think, if you, if you don't have a lot of other history knowledge to sort of orient around that. But to give you the short version, the standard view for some time, at least according to Oppenheimer, is that the Minoan eruption took place sometime around 1520 to 1500 BCE. But there has recently been radiocarbon dating and other types of uh, evidence that, if correct, would place the eruption like a 100 years earlier. So just one example is a study that I was reading about from 2006 published in the journal Science by Friedrich et al. That was radiocarbon dating of a branch from an olive tree that was buried alive in tephra on Santorini. Uh, and so the, the branches would have been – they were preserved in their life position. You know This was not a dead tree. This was still living when it got put under the ash. And that ev- the evidence from that radiocarbon dating would put the eruption in the late 17th century BCE. So like sometime around 1600 to 1627 or so. And of course the authors of this radiocarbon dating say, uh whoops, the one problem here is this is not consistent with the eruption date as it uh as it's assumed by many archaeologists, especially based on the the chronology of pharaohs in the New Kingdom of Egypt. It doesn't really match up, so maybe there's something wrong with our date or maybe there's something wrong with that chronology. Uh, Now, it certainly is possible that the radiocarbon dates could be wrong. Oppenheimer, in his book, points out that there are uncertainties with the level of atmospheric carbon-14 right around this period. Uh, He says between 3,500 and 3,700 years ago for various atmospheric chemical reasons um, that make it a little bit harder than it might usually be to obtain accurate carbon dates for objects within this period. And there have been other attempts to date the eruption using – in fact, he's got a long section in his chapter uh, if you ever want to check out the book that's really interesting about using dendrochronology and the study of ancient trees in Turkey – Uh, to try to understand what might have been happening with the Thera eruption. Like there are these trees that show these sudden spurts of growth uh, at a time that might be signaled by the eruption of the volcano. And it's like, why would a volcano erupting make trees grow more? But it has to do with the local climate in Turkey that actually having a cooler summer, uh, if you're a tree in a hot, arid climate, a cooler summer could actually help you grow more than you would normally.
1: Oh, fascinating.
0: Now, to come back to something more parallel to what we were talking about with people trying to relate these events to the Bible, uh, one thing that I think is funny is that uh, – and Oppenheimer goes into this bit – many people have tried to link the Minoan eruption To the story of Atlantis told by Plato in the Timaeus dialogue, Uh, there are some obvious parallels, like it does tell of an island civilization that achieved great uh, prosperity, but then sank into the sea amid earthquakes and fire and left behind a shoal of mud that made the sea in that region impassable. Uh, so, you know, uh, you can see some similarities, but I think it's it's important to keep in mind that this is one of the places where it's really easy for the pattern-seeking brain to get overexcited because mm-hmm. the story of Atlantis was written more than a thousand years after the, the Thera eruption, probably like 13 or 1400 years later. Uh, might not even have been intended to be taken as anything more than like an allegorical story to make a point. Uh, so I think any attempts to say, aha, Atlantis was Santorini, that seems entirely speculative based on pretty weak inference. I don't think we can even be confident that, that Atlantis was a place.
1: Yes, but but Atlantis is one of those uh, one of those things that that people are always going to jump to conclusions with, and they're gonna they're gonna bend over backwards to try and fit Atlantis in with uh, with some sort of existing evidence or tale. And it's right up there with the aliens.
0: Right, (laughs) though I admit, I I guess like if you're going to say the Atlanta story, if you knew somehow that it was based on a real event in Mediterranean history, I guess maybe this wouldn't be a bad candidate. I just right if you get
1: more into that that sort of middle area of like okay, a story, even if it's just purely for allegorical purposes, based on a a city vanishing into the sea and some sort of a cataclysm, it could have connections to this, you know, just to some uh, you know memories and, uh, and. Accounts of this having happened before. Mm. Uh, you know, because that's just that's how humans work. We, 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 when we make things up, we tend to make them make uh, base them on things that came before us, either
0: historical events or other myth cycles, other stories, etc. Right. So if we're trying to get come up with a good solid date for the Thera eruption and, and sort out all these discrepancies, one thing that would be really useful would be if there were a contemporary record that we could Di- you know that we could date definitively, which referred to the eruption. Unfortunately, we actually have shockingly few written records from this period and uh, th- this region of any kind. And what we do have does not make explicit reference to the eruption unless unless one of the papers we're looking at today is correct, and it does in an abstracted form. And this, of course, is what brings us back to this hypothetical interpretation of the Tempest Stela.
1: Ah, all
0: right. Yes, the, the intense rain, the darkening of the sky, the flooding. Exactly. So uh, so Oppenheimer actually makes reference in his chapter to this, this possible connection. He says, quote, In Egypt, depending on which uh, eruption chronology you adhere to, the time of the eruption coincided with the end of the Second Intermediate Period and the rise of the brothers Kamos and Amos, who founded the 18th dynasty of the New Kingdom. Meanwhile, in Mesopotamia, the Old Babylonian Period was nearing its terminus, with the Hittites' sack of Babylon dated circa 1595 BCE. Unfortunately, there are virtually no surviving historical texts from the period. And here's where we get to the really relevant part. It has been suggested that hieroglyphs on a stela erected by Amos in the Karnak Temple bear witness to the Minuan eruptions climatic consequences in the guise of a great storm accompanied by flooding and destruction. But it seems more likely the events recorded refer to severe monsoonal flooding in the Nile as still occurs from time to time. So at the time Oppenheimer published this in 2011, he thought it unlikely that the Tempest Stela was referring to the Minoan eruption because, uh, first of all, it could have the, the Stela could have other plausible interpretations, like some of the interpretations we've talked about already. And also the dates, though close, don't exactly line up.
1: Right. Yeah. And again, like you said, the Nile floods. It it, it it will flood. It will shrink back down. And this sort of um, fluctuation is is an, a crucial part of, of the, the, the Egyptian worldview and the way that they saw the, the world and the way that they, they formed their various uh,
0: interpretations of the gods. Right. But anyway, back to what originally got me interested in doing this episode was this paper that was published in 2014 that um, – Certainly does not make a conclusive case, but maybe makes the Minoan eruption interpretation of the Tempestila more plausible. And so this is a paper published by Robert K. Rittner and Nadine Muller, uh, published in the Journal of Near Eastern Studies in 2014 called The Amos Tempestila, Thera and Comparative Chronology. Uh, Now, just to quickly refresh on the apocalyptic climatic lines from the Stila inscription, uh, at least the translation we read earlier, uh, it talks about, quote, The gods caused the sky to come in a tempest of rain, with darkness in the western region, and the sky being unleashed without cessation, louder than the cries of the masses, more powerful than something while the rain raged on the mountains louder than the noise of the cataract, which is at Elephantine. Every house, every quarter that they reached floating on the water, like skiffs of papyrus opposite the royal residence for a period of days, while a torch could not be lit in the two lands. Now, uh, so, so we've talked about the, the sort of classic or regular interpretations of what's being described here. Maybe this is describing uh, real weather-like events that were an, maybe like uh, a particularly uh, bad monsoon season, you know, really intense Nile flooding season one summer. Or maybe these – this is a fictional account. Maybe it's somehow metaphorical as a statement about military invasions or movements of people.
1: Yeah, and and, and it is also worth reminding ourselves that – what we we see here what has survived like there's nothing in this account that couldn't have been said about just a really intense storm uh that was uh, related to uh you know to say the monsoon uh, uh season or something you know to that effect you know that it's just it rained a whole lot the sky was dark the sky darkens uh when there are, are heavy storms and uh and then flooding occurred um so you you don't Need the volcano to explain what we're uh, what we're we're reading here,
0: though, if there were a volcanic eruption, it's very possible that it could it could create this kind of intense weather that, that is being described. Volcanic eruptions inject gases and ash particles way up into the atmosphere, which in some cases can cause extreme heavy rains, lightning storms and things like that in the area surrounding the eruption. Uh, And of course, we know that on on an even broader scale, big eruptions can have these huge climatic effects that can infect an entire hemisphere of the globe. Like they bring cool summers, bad harvests and famine, etc. But like we've said, you can have even earthquakes, you can have dark skies, thunderstorms and flooding in Egypt without it necessarily being the result of a volcano. So why do Rittner and Muller further suggest the link in this paper? Uh, Just to briefly mention a few points. One thing is that this paper offers a new revised translation of the Stila, uh, which they argue, for one thing, makes it pretty clear that the events described are not supposed to be some kind of military or political metaphor. They really seem to be describing literal weather events, and these events are said to have been personally witnessed by Amos himself. Uh, another thing is just some Complicated interlocking date stuff. Like it looks like if you date the Tempest Stela and the reign of Amos something like 30 to 50 years earlier than the traditional uh, pharaoh chronology does. That puts it closer to the date for the Thera eruption, uh, at least the date that would be implied by the more recent radiocarbon dating. And we've discussed already the reasons that the Thera eruption has different dates. Uh, But you remember the olive branch and the radiocarbon dating putting it closer to like the uh, late 1600s BCE. Uh, If you do that, allegedly some other discrepancies and discontinuities about dates in ancient regional history would at least be partially resolved. Another interesting argument I came across uh, was actually a point raised by a different professor, a University of Chicago archaeologist named David Schloan, which I saw quoted in some news articles covering this paper. And this was that if this link is true, it would make Amos's military victories over the Hyksos make even more sense. We know that the Thera eruption caused catastrophic tsunamis that affected places like the coast of Crete. If these tsunamis also struck the coast of Egypt along the Nile Delta, this potentially could have devastated Hyksos ports and weakened the Hyksos greatly by crushing their coastal settlements and crushing their ships and their sea power, which in turn would have weakened them, making it easier for Amos to get victory in the conquest of Lower Egypt. So yeah, while this is by no means conclusive, I think it seems plausible that the phenomena described in the Tempestila could be the Thera eruption and or the weather effects that followed it. But of course, it seems very hard to be certain about that. Uh, but in general, I do really enjoy things like this, finding new possible connections between natural events, geological and climate events, and artifacts from human history that we didn't really know for sure how to interpret before.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and one of those situations too, where you you can't help but think like, what is the uh, you know, what is the closest we could come to being sure about this, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and there's, you know, there may always be this gap. But then again, who knows? Who knows what else might be discovered in the future that uh, that could help line things up even better?
0: Now, I was poking around about this, and, and I figured it might be worth addressing something that I think is um, – even with this, the study we're talking about now, like we said, is far from conclusive. But it like it makes some interesting arguments. Right. There's some stuff that I think is even more speculative, and and goes in directions that might be unsurprising if you're familiar with you know uh, popular writing in this subject matter, um, which is links to biblical interpretation. As some people who take the biblical stories of like the Exodus and surrounding events as literal history have apparently tried to connect the events described in the Storm Stila as evidence that, for example, the plague of darkness described in the Bible actually literally happened in Egypt. Um, And I would just say, from my point of view, this type of reading of religious texts seems kind of misguided in several ways, but I guess it is not surprising.
1: Yeah, and uh, yeah, again, we touched on uh, a little bit already uh, about this uh, the, about the Hebrew-Hyksos correlation, as I've seen it uh, referred uh, to. It's uh, it's one of the uh, usual suspects. I've seen it referred to as in attempts to establish an historic record for the great antiquity of the Jewish people. And again, people have been writing about this possible connection for literally
0: ages. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, as uh, even before this new study, but for example. It is not surprising that people would like take one of these studies and run with it and say like, Hey, proof of the Bible or something. Uh, I mm-hmm. was just, I, I didn't go deep on this, but for example, I, I found an article by, it was like a blog post, uh, on the Times of Israel by this guy named Simcha, uh, Jacobovici, uh, saying essentially that you know th- this is somehow proof of the historicity of uh, of the Exodus or the biblical plagues i think it goes without saying that this is not what the authors of the study are alleging
1: yeah, uh, this Jacobo-Vici uh, argument, uh, I, I, this was referenced in a really interesting blog post that I read from George Athos, who teaches at Moore Theological College in Sydney, Australia. And, and Athos points out that traditionally the the, uh, the stela was interpreted as either the description of a localized natural disaster or as the metaphor for the oppression of the Egyptians at the hand of hands of the, the, the Hyksos rulers. And he discusses uh, Rittner and uh, Mohler, uh, but he also talks uh, Talks about this uh, Jacobovici argument. Uh, now, Jacobovici is an Israeli Canadian filmmaker who busts out a lot of work on archaeological evidence for biblical events, uh, work that often clashes with accepted interpretations. So he's been all up on the History Channel, for uh, example. Of course. Uh, this is what Athos says, uh, writes, quote, Jacobo asserts that this new interpretation proves the biblical exodus because the natural disaster in the Tempest Stila describes matches up with the plague of darkness described in the exodus narrative. Jacobo uh, claimed back in 2006 that this uh, stila was a key piece of evidence for finding the exodus in the archaeological records of Egypt. And now he says, here is the final proof. Now, Athos goes on to say, no, in his opinion, there is no direct connection to be made here, no matter how much he himself would like to see such a firm connection. He's very, uh, you know, he, he mentions this several times. Like He says, you know, I, I would love to see this proven true. I would love to find this connection, you know, uh, but this is not it. We can't jump to conclusions and and, uh, you know, announce that it is that is done, you know, and he presents several reasons why. First of all, uh, he said no, this connection was not made by Rittner and, and Moeller in their work. Also, the Tempest Stela makes no mention of slaves, Hebrews, or anything else that matches up with Exodus. Also, Amos described it as something greater than the work of a god, not the work of a god. Uh, Ridner and Moler stress that the emphasis is not the darkness, but rather the abnormally harsh rainstorm. Darkness is secondary to the rain. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, think back to what we read earlier, or even go back and listen to it, uh, where they're like, it, it rained crazy, and it was dark. It wasn't like, and then there was darkness, and also it was raining. And then he writes, uh, Jacobovici makes a direct link between the Hyksos and the Israelite slaves of the Exodus narrative. He is not the first to make this link, but it creates a series of other problems. For example, the Hyksos ruled a portion of Egypt, which contradicts the Exodus narrative and states the Israelites were slaves, not rulers. There are also chronological difficulties, including seeming clashes with the archaeological record of a settlement into Canaan. And then finally, uh, Jacobo-Vici apparently plays fast and loose with the term proof, according, um, to Athos.
0: Yeah. And that seems like one of the biggest things, obviously. I mean, as soon as you're saying like proof, you're, you're really setting a bar for yourself that you're almost never going to clear.
1: Yeah. So, so Athos finishes up by saying, quote, I'll be glad of the day when we do find evidence for the Exodus outside the Bible, but today is not that day. So I thought that that was a rather interesting take on it, you know, mm. um, uh, you know again, somebody coming from the the point of view where they 're not just saying like i 'm here to to disprove all um uh you know bits of legend and mythology i 'm here to disprove the bible and he 's saying you know i would I would love for this to be proven true i and, and he really seems to write from a standpoint where it it sounds like he uh his faith is in that that uh, in in the reality of it but he is saying you know th- this is not the proof you're looking for this is not you know you, we cannot say that the the job is done and that we can you know that, that it has been proven uh, to have existed via archaeological evidence
0: yeah don't don't get sucked in by the checkmate mentality
1: yeah now, of course, you know, could the the, the Stela refer to a cataclysm that, remembered by various people, ends up influencing later tales and traditions? Uh, you know, of course. But yeah, that is a far cry yeah. from a direct
0: connection, you know. Right, yeah.
1: I'm finally scrolling down and getting to see the Blue Monkeys.
0: I think maybe sometime we should just come back and, and, and look more at the paintings of Akrotiri. They are weird and beautiful. Like, there are, I don't know, I, I love the artistic st- style of them that give living beings these strange curves. Like there are these very, uh, elongated S shaped gazelles that look almost like something out of a, I don't know, abstract or, uh, I don't know what the term would be. I'm not good at my art history, the impressionist or something like they're clearly representative. They are gazelles, but they have these ridiculously elongated sort of tubular curved bodies. And also uh, like humans, like there's an image of these, these two guys that look like they're boxing each other, but with these sort of curved S shaped torsos. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's fascinating to look at some of these images. I'm looking at the
1: blue monkeys right now that you referenced earlier. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, aside from looking very much like monkeys, you know, there's a fluidity to the way that their uh, their bodies are illustrated here, you know, that, that certainly matches up with the actual movements, the actual bodies of these. So, you know, this isn't one of those cases. As fascinating as I find second and third hand reproductions of, of animals in art, you know, where somebody's clearly... Painting something based on a description, uh, second or third hand description rather than, uh, than direct evidence like these, these seem to capture the essence of these animals as they are alive, uh, perhaps even in the wild.
0: Yeah, yeah, though, uh, exactly one of the questions that comes up as I was reading this weird uh, back and forth in the journal primates, or at least the began in the journal primates by people arguing about what species the monkeys depicted in this painting are supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And uh, so there was a paper in, I think, 2019 saying, uh, ah, they're actually these monkeys from India. And then there was a reply saying, no, they're these monkeys from Africa. And then there was another reply. But basically it came down to the question of were the people painting these monkeys painting a monkey that they had seen alive or were they painting a monkey as it had been portrayed in other art that they had seen?
1: Oh, that's true, too. This, is, this could be uh, that situation as well. Like, you know, they, they, they have this fluidity to their form. They're caught in several poses that feel very appropriate and realistic for monkeys, but they could have been basing this on another work that that someone else had done for sure. Yeah, interesting. We'll have to come back to that. It is a whole mess of monkeys, though. They look like they're up to no good. <laughs> there, There is also a sense of barrel of monkeys to it, you know, yeah. like uh, I don't want to, uh, to to reduce them to that, but there is kind of a like a bunch of blue monkeys spilled on some tiles, you know, because um, the barrel of monkeys are good representations of the fluidity of the monkeys form and movement as well. Mm hmm. I think maybe we need to call it. All right, well, we're going to go ahead and uh, and, and finish this, uh, Stila, right now, and go ahead and uh, and 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 put it into the archives. But we'd love for anybody out there to uh, touch base with us on this. Have you? Have you uh, seen any of the places that we have? Uh, have you visited any of the places that we discussed here? Do you have any thoughts on uh, you know, the connections, uh, possible connections between uh, uh, the Tempest Stila and, uh, and uh, you know, the, the uh, cataclysmic eruptions and, uh, and, and stories of, uh, of, of legend and, and mythology? Uh, let us know. We'd love to hear from you.
0: There are all kinds of other interesting effects of the Minoan eruption that people have done studies on all over the place uh, about how they affected how it affected civilizations and and marks it left on the planet so uh, yeah if you got any, anything interesting along those lines to share with us please do
1: all right. In the meantime, if you want more stuff to blow your mind, you know where to find it the Stuff to Blow Your Mind feed. We have normal, regular, core episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind on Tuesdays and Thursdays, little listener mail on Mondays. Wednesday is the short form artifact episode that we mentioned earlier, you know, little, little, uh, you know, specific things, specific, specific moments in time, uh, specific ideas, that sort of thing. And then on Fridays, we do uh, Weird House Cinema, which is uh, our less sciency uh, installment, our chance to just to focus on a particular weird film and chat about it.
0: Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio.